Hey everybody, today's guest has 26 years of sales leadership experience. Kirk Thorpe, he's going to speak with us today about how to keep a sales leader engaged and on the team as the average tenor is around 19 months. He's also going to share with us how, as a new sales leader, to assess the current uh, team members' abilities very quickly. He's also going to talk about what to look for in a new hire using the DISC personality profile. Next week, we're going to be speaking with John Shear. John was the first salesperson at his company after coming from HubSpot, and now he's leading a team of nine. And he's going to be sharing with us how to find your target audience, as well as how to sell a freemium product. Anyways, I hope you really enjoy this episode with Kirk. Uh, we've got a lot to learn and a lot to cover, and I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Kirk, wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Adam. Pleasure to be here, really. So can we start uh, with, I, I looked you up on LinkedIn, and I'm a little bit overwhelmed with your experience. Uh, you have a lot. Uh, can you give us the elevator pitch uh, to Kirk Thorpe? Yeah, not a problem at all. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, in, in, in a nutshell, um, I strive to be the best at everything I do. Highly competitive driven, that kind of thing. And that uh, hopefully comes out and, and fosters most of the direction of my work. But uh, uh, I've been very, very fortunate to, you know, learn uh, the art and the process of selling uh, at a very high level in the enterprise space. And um, hopefully I was a good enough student where I picked it up and passed it on along the way. Um, I think if anything uh, defines me, it's that you know, I have this uh, uncanny ability to understand, you know, if an organization is a good fit for what I'm doing and to make them feel comfortable that the solution that I represent is a trusted partner and could actually help them uh, solve a business problem. So that's kind of the credo I live by. Excellent. All right. So on that note, um, you know how to how to find the right companies, but how does a company uh, keep uh, VP sales engaged and on the team? You know, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. I think uh, in many of the articles I've read, the life of a VP of sales, the tenure on average is about 19 months. And not because of anything other than circumstances and regimes change. And we all... Uh, uh, know it. We run in packs. We uh, like to work with people we've worked and been successful with prior. And in many cases, so do others. So, um, you know, it, it, in this whole idea of being a, a VP of sales, you know, you do your best in a very short period of time. And, you know, recently I've spent some time in, in turnarounds 
and uh, helping some companies, you know, uh, actually launch something that uh, uh, was tried a couple of different times, so to speak. And it's funny, but, you know, you mentioned basically tenure. How do you keep a VP of sales? It's the VP of sales that has to be adaptive to the next step and the next step and the next step and understand and organize around major shifts in either growth phases and or product changes or industry changes. And in many cases, it's a a combination of the above. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, what you're saying is that it's more the VP sales. He has to be, he or she has to be ready uh, to make these changes and adaptable. Absolutely. And, And get one step ahead of where you're at. And it's not always easy. I, you know, it's that old adage, how do you plan when you're in the middle of chaos? And in many cases, (laughs) cases, you, you just do, you set aside the time. Um, one of the, one of the gentlemen I was fortunate enough to work for at BrainShark and a few other companies, uh, always had the ability to set some time aside each and every morning to look at what we really needed to do long-term versus, you know, the, the current situation that we were in. And I've kind of kept that uh, uh, to this day as a credo. Okay. So earlier uh, you said that you like to, as a VP of sales, we like to be together and work with the same team. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a different company, do you generally uh, uh, bring your own sales team with you? I don't think you have to replace everybody, but yeah, generally you like to surround yourself with people that you trust and have seen in action before. And in many cases, um, a regime change in sales offers an opportunity for the people that are already there to, to step up and learn something new. And it also offers an opportunity for the people that you've worked with in the past to, to have a quick look at what's going on and to see uh, if they might be a good fit for what you do, uh, both above me and below me. That's uh, always been a sign of the times. And, you know, it's, it's great when you work for a larger company and you've, you know, worked through quite a few sales hires. And that gives you a very big network in which to draw from for other things as you launch your career in other companies. And, and in my case, many of uh, uh, the startups. So that's been a big benefit to me. Excellent. Hmm. So uh, how do you deal then with the team that's already existing? You know, you give them a chance. And I think, you know, in many situations, you're going to know whether somebody has been able to perform based on their skill set. If they haven't been able to perform, then you have to do an assessment. You have to say, listen, are you the right person for this particular job? And you have to have that, you know, humble talk and you have to have a, a, a plan of improvement. And I'm not talking about a, a PIP, you know, uh, uh, basically uh, uh, a performance improvement plan. But, you know, you're there to help. You're there to find out how you can make the most of those resources in a short time, given what you got. And if you have to go out there and replace the whole crew, that's a real tough one because you you get a big setback in time. And... You know, I, I've had to do both. And, you know, I prefer the mix because I think you keep a modicum of company culture and you take the people who are willing to step up and do the job and learn something 
And likewise, I can learn from them, you know, what the value props are, how they've gone about things, what's worked, what hasn't. And it gives me a great sense of uh, history in order to launch something new from. Yeah. Okay. And you said that you have this meeting with them to kind of the existing salespeople. Mm -hmm. Uh, When do you have that meeting? Do you do that right off the bat? Do you take a couple months and and see where everybody's at and kind of get to know the product yourself? How do you manage that? Great question. I think there's a couple of meetings. First and foremost, if you're into something, you have to do the appropriate planning yourself. You have to understand, you know, what you're going to ask of a salesperson, Uh, Are you going to go after an enterprise space? Had you been doing that before? Um, You know, are are what the company is, what the company did in in the past going to work for what you do in the future? And so part of it's on you, part of it's on them. That initial assessment to say, listen, you know, we want to keep you. We want to make sure that uh, we can help develop you. We want to, you know, make you successful if you haven't been in the past has to take place right away. But then how they fit into that organization longer term and the rules you're going to create in your vision of a sales plan, you know, comes after you've done the right due diligence and the planning and uh, happy to give you some examples if you choose. What are some examples? Well, a lot of the examples are, you know, when you go into a situation, uh, you, you kind of assess what the rules have been. And in many companies that are smaller and little, people do many different jobs. And sometimes focus works. So in the case of, uh, for instance, plan on, we had to go in and say, you know, how could we get the most out of the customer base? How could we make them feel like they had uh, uh, people paying attention to them more than they did in the past by, uh, uh, you know, um, or with a sales strategy. So, you know, we created account management positions. We took the people that were right um, to do that and had certain qualifications, ambitions, and a skill set. And uh, they worked the customer base and they did it very, very well and achieved, you know, a great uh, increase in terms of revenue from that base that we hadn't had before. Same thing holds true with new business. I mean, new business is always one of those things where, uh, you know, people like to say, okay, new business is this. And in reality, you can have a couple of forms of it. You can have a growth strategy for for an account. You could start small, go high. You can go uh, like we did at BrainShark, we had small, medium, and large customers. And within that, we had the ability to go trap a customer new. And I don't mean to use that term, but to be able to go ahead and let that customer know what our value proposition was and do a smaller sale to begin with, then take an account management, a senior account management position in order to grow across the enterprise. And that's where the bulk of the growth over a three-year period came from. And BrainShark was the group we ran that allowed us to grow, I think it was close to 700% in the three-year period. Wow. it's impressive. So, so you like the, the land and expand uh, strategy in sales? I've seen it work, yeah. So when you're looking back at your career, uh, what have you learned uh, that you wish that you knew at the beginning? Yeah, that's, that, that too is a good question. If, if you think about how I might have been more productive uh, early on in a management role, um, by virtue of knowing what I know now, I think it would be to look at everybody as an individual and um, 
I think it's kind of an odd uh, analogy, but if you think about the Wizard of Oz, and you think about you have uh, you know you're stepping into a new company, you have a bunch of people that have great experiences, but let's say we organize classifications of a relationship salesperson versus a process salesperson. There's different types out there. And uh, then, you know, what size of customer do they usually work with and how comfortable are they? But I think everybody needs something. And, you know, in the relationship salespeople, you have to give them the ability to, to do the mechanics of the job as well, the process orientation. Um, nobody likes to, to you know, continually work in Salesforce, maybe two to three hours a day. But the fact is, if you're great at relationships, but don't like process, that's the help we can give you. If vice versa, you're great at process, but not great at relationships. Okay, so how do we expand and make that something that's uh, in your growth path? How do we give you that benefit to not bond, but become more of a trusted partner when you engage with a client. So, you know, getting back to the the Wizard of Oz strategy, the Tin Man uh, needed a heart, the lion needed courage. I think every rep, you know, you have to do an assessment with and you have to say, where are you strong? Where are you not? And how can I help you get um, to that strength in each one of those classifications? So if somebody is weak on the relationship side, what, was, what would be your number one piece of advice for them? Uh, it, it's simple. I tell you, you have to work with somebody who's good at relationships. And it's my sincere belief that people buy from people they trust. Certainly on the enterprise side, you don't have to be the best uh, uh, you know, value proposition out there. You don't have to have the best services organization you know, the world has ever seen. What you do have to do is let them know that you're there for the long term to take care of them. And that just means that you'll service them as good after the sale as you did before the sale. And that's where you really build trust. Let's face it, if you're in an enterprise sale, you know, typically you're looking at six to nine months, and that's probably on the shorter end, um, depending on the size of uh, uh, the transaction. So over that time, you get to know somebody well, they build trust in you, you build trust in them, and that's how you get something done. And that's actually how you get more done after the fact. Okay. So as you were just saying that enterprises are six to nine months, or if not longer, of a sales cycle. Mm -hmm. um, how would a new company prepare themselves for this? Yeah, that's always uh, uh, the age-old question. You know, a new company, it's kind of interesting. You can look at a couple of different stages. One is no product. Somebody comes on board. How do we make this work in a company? So that's, that's one stage. That's the startup from the beginning. More often than not, you have a owner occupier, uh, a president of the business going out and selling and doing all the other uh, work as well. It's at that point in time when they have a customer, a couple of customers, they've proven a value prop that they want to bring on some kind of sales leadership. At that point in time is when they say, okay, how do we go uh, make this work? How do we go ahead and capture a market? How do we you know, look at things a little bit differently and scale. And in many cases, that's where I've kind of come in. Um, 
or just after that fact where, you know, you've built a base of three to five to 10 clients on the enterprise side. And then how do we walk across the enterprise with, with each one of them and or make what we did bigger on the next sale and the next sale and the next sale? So, you know, in many cases, you look at something like that and you say, I have to first and foremost understand what problem I'm solving. I have to then look at the kinds of people I would need to talk about that problem that I'm solving. I'd have to look at competitive differentiation. I think that's ultimately your most important thing. And, and the, why, the way and the why I say that is because competitive differentiation is like uh, looking at a piece of wallpaper, a bubble, and pressing it, and it blasts out in all kinds of directions. I think from that, you, you can look at a good analogy, <laughs> but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you can look and see, you know, what kinds of problems you're solving. You can look and see, you know, how you go about uh, organizing your offering and products and services. You can go about and see, you know, the different types of classifications of the product that you have and how it might fit into a larger scale industry. Are they components of a product, for instance, or are they the whole enterprise, the integrated uh, enchilada? For instance, at, uh, let's say, PlanOn, you had a number of different large scale value props in the real estate management sector, the IWMS space. But you also had this thing that was rapidly developing called FASB, And it was the ability to reclass a certain area of how you managed leases as a public company and how you accounted for those. So, you know, you were hit pretty quick with how do we deal with this different product that's altogether, you know, new and uh, uh, kind of outside of our core competency? And do we have to put it in a different unit? Do we have to you know, uh, uh, set aside uh, uh, and hire other people to go manage it. Getting back to what we were originally talking about, you know, competitive differentiation and all the different elements, that gave us some insight into who we would compete with, kinds of products and services we'd actually have to offer to go achieve um getting a couple of sales in that area. And then how could we do it with our existing customer base? Do we have the right personnel to sell it? Do we have the right personnel to install it? And do we have the right personnel to service it? So what is the right personnel to sell it? Uh, Is it somebody that's more relationship oriented or process oriented? Well, in the enterprise, that's what you have to look for. If, If you're looking at Big Bang, let's say ERP or IWMS, something that's greater than, let's say, a million dollars. Um, in services and uh, uh, ARR over a three-year period, then, um, you know, that that may take a certain kind of individual because the sales cycle is going to be a little bit longer. And I think if you're very good and competent in our relationships first and foremost, um, you know, that, that gives you an edge. If you're good at process, that gives you volume. But if you're good at relationships, that really gives you an edge. You can teach process much easier than you can teach relationships. Yeah. Hmm. So how, how, what is some of your best advice to, for teaching relationship? I know I asked you this before, and you, you said to 
to learn from somebody else. Mm-hmm. But what's what's one piece of advice that you would teach somebody? Uh, I think first and foremost, uh, you have to see it in action, and that's what a sales leader is for. And if somebody needs help on relationships, I have to go set that uh, bar as to what I want. And more specifically, it might be as simple as better networking um, and showing a person what that means and showing a person that, you know, when they're there in front of somebody, they're there to build trust. And that may come in a heck of a different, uh, 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 a lot of situations. But, you know, first and foremost, I would lead by example. That's, that's the best thing I could give somebody. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think absolutely. It also builds respect for you as a leader Mm. uh, that, Hey, I'm willing to do this, this work too. I'm not just, not just asking you to do it. I'm, I'm showing you that I could do it as well. True. As a matter of fact, you know, what's kind of funny, there was a, uh, at Plan On, we did get into the uh, uh, higher ed space, and we were at a state university system on the West Coast. And uh, we won that business, it turns out, by the first day that we went to visit that account. We stood up and they asked us, well, how do you fit in the market? Who are your competitors? And we said, you know, simply, we, we didn't want to talk about our competitors. We were here to talk about us. And that we wanted to talk about the merits of our solution versus somebody else's and got on with the business. We did it very politely, but they said that changed their mind about us at that point in time, everything they'd read, everything they'd done up until that point. So, you know, that's integrity, that's trust, that's what you build. And that's where things work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. I think it's uh, it's important not to bash your competition. Yes, sir. Okay. So when you're going to build your team, um, a new team, not one that you've worked with previously, what is it that you're looking for in a candidate? Really good question. So, um, you know, s- startups don't have a lot of resources in this respect, but if you're small to, let's say, medium to, to large kind of sales organization, over 10 people, then you might have some more resources. But what do I look for? Um, if if and when I'm usually in an enterprise or mid-market to enterprise role, um, I'm looking for people that uh, fit into a certain category. We At a macro level, we talk about relationships and process orientation at an individual level. But um, one of the examples would be another company that I worked for. We did disk testing, and uh, uh, it was a form of looking at a salesperson's personality. And then in addition, there were certain ambitions. So what we did was there was a, a unique little product that we were fortunate enough to bring in-house, and we would have these individuals test out. And it would be maybe a half hour to an hour process on their part, but they'd answer a few questions. And we'd get a great profile of uh, what, what I consider their core uh, primordial ooze or you know, what they were made of. And you know, if they were an extrovert, if they were an introvert, um, you know, did they have a high sense of urgency what were the key traits of their personality that we could apply to 
you know, our organization to say somebody's been successful with these uh, uh, different traits. In addition, there wasn't only the personality testing, but above and beyond, there were some ambitions. And, you know, was somebody creative? Uh, was somebody, um, you know, would they, would, would they rather work at a charity on, you know, during the week or would they rather, uh, you know, work hard 12 hours a day to make enough money to give to a charity. That's, that's the primary difference between the two. Altruistic was the actual uh, uh, label for that. Um, but we actually had a chance to model some of our best salespeople and then hire to that model um, as we went on. And it, it was just, uh, it really boiled down to a couple of key points. We wanted extroverts. We wanted people with a high sense of urgency who liked engaging with other people and we liked people that were creative and had a high sense of integrity and above all, weren't all that altruistic <laughs> of all things. The, the perfect match. <laughs> it was a, like that, that, that would at least get us to a point where if we met the individual to begin with and uh, liked them, um, then we would put them through this process. And if they stacked up within a tolerance, then that was great. We'd bring them through Very the process. Highly did, did you create yeah. your own uh, disk uh, test or did you uh, find one that was online or already assembled? No, we, we found one that was online. As a matter of fact, there's a, a, a couple of, if you just look on the web, there's a couple of good alternatives in the talent management space that can give you that quick uh, testing quick online, and maybe some analytics to say, in my organization, people stack up this way. These are the traits of service personnel. These are the traits of sales personnel, and uh, modeled after some of our best people. And then uh, you can refine that as you go along. But there's not only personality, there's more so ambitions kind of channel a person to, you know, what you want from them. If they're highly driven, and, you know, they're motivated to do what they have to do and have a high sense of urgency. You know, that's something you can't instill in somebody. That's something that's, that's you know, somebody's made with that, I think. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, and people are very, uh, are in the interview process, are okay with filling out this personality test? Yeah. You know, it was kind of funny. It was... Uh, um, you know, people sometimes take exception, but, you know, we, we would have to be very motivated to take somebody through the process if we gave them that test. So we tried to, you know, weed out um, the people that might not be a good organizational fit for what we do, might not have the experience, do background checks. With LinkedIn is a beautiful tool nowadays because you can just, you know, hit a couple of people and, and have a quick conversation with them you know, from a backdoor standpoint. So a lot of that work and effort can be done prior to having to give them some kind of personality test. And uh, over in Europe, it's much more prevalent. But uh, over here, there seems to be a little bit of a negative connotation to it. But people would, you know, if we brought them down to the process and they took the test and, and then they met with some more individuals and for whatever reason it didn't work out, they'd want to know if the test was what... Uh, um, set them off. And it, it never really was because, you know, it would have to be something they did in the process post-test. Yeah. Interesting. And you, you said that it, uh, 
somebody with less experience or more experience, who would you prefer to hire? I would prefer to hire somebody that, uh, you know, had all the traits that I wanted them to have, the high sense of urgency, the extrovert, like dealing with people because in prospecting that's important, and then a good sense of experience, enough to do the job. Do I need somebody with, uh, you know, 25 years of uh, sales experience? No, because I don't think, you know, that really exists out there. I think if you look at, at five within your industry and core competency, you're probably very fortunate, five yeah. years. Interesting. Okay, great. So now you've got somebody on board. How do you start training them? That is one of the key things that uh, – uh, you know, you have to you have to really have set in stone before you make that first hire, before you write that offer letter, before you negotiate it. Um, first and foremost, you got to know what you're going to do with that individual. If it's a question of coming in and and taking a manual from a couple of screenshots that were done, maybe in a startup capacity, that that's just not going to foster a quick up and coming uh, rep. To, to get all the information they need to hit the field. And so it's, it's, it's a couple of things. It's to have that plan of onboarding. And it may be as simple as, you know, these are the things that we need to get across to you. And these are the people that you're going to work with in order to achieve that. Startups, you don't always have a lot of resource to help you in that respect. Mid-market, you don't have a lot of resource to help you in that respect. But you have to have that plan. What am I going to give you in order to understand everything about us to make somebody feel comfortable to go with our solution? So onboarding plans are very, very important. It starts with day one. They come in. That's their, I guess, uh, you know, first impression of your company and how you're going to treat them in the future. So to have that day lined out, to have that week lined out, to have that month lined out so that, you know, you can get somebody up to speed quickly. Because if you don't, you're doing your company a disservice and you're losing a lot of money uh, by virtue yeah. of being busy. Yeah. All right. So that's very interesting. So to have a very detailed plan, like minute, not minute by minute, but maybe hour by hour, what you're going to be doing how you're going to be doing it, with whom you're going to be doing it for like the first week, two weeks uh, to a month, depending on the company. Correct. And then, you know, I've always seen what what works best is, you know, in a lot of cases, certainly in the enterprise world, somehow, some way, you know, there's a way to compensate somebody for the startup period. If it's six to nine months, understand that. But tying those types of things to, uh, MBOs that would be more focused on onboarding. If you what's an MBO? MBO uh, management by objective, a way to pay somebody on a uh, an objective that was more focused on their coming up to speed on your solution than just uh, a standard payment for being there or. Um, you know, some other thing, if they could get focused on how they come up to speed, whether it be through testing, you know, other kinds of objectives like uh, pipeline development, uh, being able to talk about the value prop intelligently with a client or prospect, being able to, you know, work with somebody who is in process with a contract and learn 
what we do there, that tends to be a third of the, the time in any sales process and people don't pay enough attention to it. You know, what are the needs of our company? What are the needs of others? What do you run into? You know, you really have to take that sales process from the start where you enable and develop uh, prospects to the back end where you're actually signing them up and, you know, turning them over to services. So if you can get somebody trained in onboarding through that, at least to have a reasonable expectation of what to expect, you've done your job. What do you say? What do you say to the people that uh, feel that the only way to to really get an understanding and to really train is to actually speak to real prospects? I, I think they're probably right, but the question becomes: At what level do you have them engage? And so, you know, in many cases, we called it exercise. So, let's say somebody was uh, coming on board. We wanted to get them started in a particular vertical, and we had value propositions for that particular vertical. We would let them have exercise on, you know, a lot of the leads that uh, came across that might not be all that important, meaning they weren't 100% fit for what we do. But to have them go ahead and kind of test those out with, you know, what they've learned, how they went about it, that kind of thing, and to have somebody help oversee that for them was was key to us. It uh, made a lot of sense. And that's what we called exercise. Great. When you say help somebody to help oversee them, you mean kind of sitting on their shoulder at the beginning to listen to the phone calls and give them live feedback right afterwards? Right. And, you know, sometimes people don't like to be monitored, so to speak. But I think if you position it that it's in their best interest, that you can help them get up to speed much more quickly, you know, that's the way to go. And first it's and foremost, it's lead by example. You know, I would get on calls with people and show them what my expectation of them would be once they were up to speed. And then, you know, ultimately that let them run the conversation and sit back and listen and see, you know, what, what they had actually learned and picked up and, and that should feed back into an onboarding process as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we've hired the person. And we've mm-hmm. trained the person. Mm-hmm. And now let's just say the person's not working out for whatever reason. How do you let a team member or multiple team members go? Uh, not how do you let them go, but how do you address that with the rest of the team to keep the morale high? Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting one. Um, more often than not, peers are going to recognize that as quickly as the manager will recognize that. And I think if it's done in, again, with integrity and and trust, listen, the reasons this is not working out are this, and you let that organization know what it is that was expected and what they didn't achieve and where you might have, uh, um, you know, went wrong in the hiring process, that's fair. That's uh, something an organization couldn't... uh, argue with and an individual couldn't argue against. Um, you know, they're, they're, those are not fun conversations to have. But, you know, I will say this, the quicker you do it, the better you are. And, you know, from the last hiring round, you may have other pipeline uh, people in the pipeline that you might have gone forward with. And, you know, those relationships hopefully can be tapped for a quick start um, because time is your enemy in sales. Yeah. 
Mm. Very much. Okay, interesting. So let's uh, take a step away from the, the hiring and firing process. Sure. <laughs> and uh, as, as we said, and we've noted earlier, is that you have a lot of experience as a, as a leader. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is a biggest mistake that you've made, uh, and what did you learn from it? Hmm. You know what? I, uh, um, I've always been one to, to apply a sense of fairness And, you know, dealing with reps and dealing with management, you are the intermediary, you know, as a sales leader. And that balance of fairness, instead of just reading the party line, I think is is most important. And as it's applied to, to one situation, I'll give you an example. In many cases, I sincerely believe that if you've given, let's say, a sales rep, everything they need to be able to, you know, walk a client through a sales process. And they are fully capable in order to go about that and achieve that, then a rep has to be successful. If you leave somebody out in the field hanging for the nine months or 12 months until you you build a stable of uh, uh, opportunities and you walk them through, let's say, an enterprise process, six to nine months, it's going to be 12 months before they're successful. I think you got to find a way to make them successful prior. So if I learned one thing, it's find a way to fairly make somebody successful before the end of that 12-month term. And I can give you a quick example if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, you know, one of the companies I worked for, who we got some some pretty severe growth out of, great growth. Um, you know, when we started the process uh, in building the enterprise group, we we actually allowed for renewals um, to be part of their income stream. And... What I mean by that is we wanted people to be successful. Success breeds success. And we wanted people to come in and knock the cover off the ball. So we found a way to write a plan that uh, achieved company objectives and achieved personal objectives and fostered growth. So I think if you find a way to make people successful early, that all they want is more and they'll bring their friends in, they'll bring the best of the people in, you know, people from around the organization in different departments are asking you, did you make the number? How are you doing? They want to help. That's the kind of sales culture that uh, I would have built faster in a lot of different uh, uh, circumstances if it was, uh, uh, if it was within my control to do so. Interesting. So yeah. let them get early wins from the start. And however that may come about, I, I think in a lot of situations, certainly what I've, I've been doing, you know, some turnaround, some early stage, that kind of thing. Um, you know, maybe you have one or two reps that have been very, very successful, but you got to spread the love a little bit. You got to make sure that the people coming in have something to do when they're there, that they become successful along with those others. You just can't have a few at the top. You have to make sure it's fair and equitable across the board. 
So if there's one thing I've learned, it's the earlier you can pinpoint what's need, what needs to be done in order to spread the wealth, the better off you're going to be going forward. Interesting. Yeah. What do you, what do you say about, uh, you know, you get a good lead in, or you get the good leads in that you know that we, you're, you could close and that your product is a fit for them, mm-hmm. but you want to give it to your best salespeople because you know that they're going to close it. How do you, how do you handle that? Okay. So great question. And that gets back to the fairness play. So why is it advantageous to bring somebody through a process with that top rep? Maybe the company looks at the ability to go ahead and double pay in certain situations like that or finds a way to cross compensate so that both parties are best served by going forward with that as a team. And the organization ultimately wins because they get a quick hit on that other person. And in many cases, don't have to spend more money on a draw or something like that. So a win can be achieved for the company and for the sales reps very quickly and easily. But it's that sense of how do you get somebody in there enthused, give them a quick win, you know, walk them through a contract cycle. The, the sooner you do something like that with people, the faster you build momentum. And I'm a firm believer in that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Kirk, uh, I've learned really a lot here. Uh, I think uh, I think our audience has as well. So thank you very much. Is there a way that uh, somebody can reach out to you? Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Kirk Tharp, just like it sounds. And uh, uh, you know, you can message me there. You can. Uh, uh, my phone number's on there as well. Feel free to reach out and, and contact me. Um, open to anything. Absolutely. Great. Thank you, Kirk. Really appreciate uh, the time here, Adam. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit startupsalespodcast.com or email startupsalespodcast at gmail.com. Great, Kirk. Let's, uh, let's finish it off with a quick five questions for you. Okay, great. Number one, what is your favorite sales or leadership book? Customer-centric selling. Excellent. Do you know the author? It would be uh, originally Mike Bosworth, Frank Viscatus, Holland, and uh, one other gentleman. There were four who originally started, three that run the company now. But Frank Viscatus is uh, one of the primary authors. Interesting. Okay. Do you have someone that you follow uh, for sales or leadership ideas? You know, one of the best blogs I've ever read, read is from a gentleman by the name of David Scott, who was with, uh, I believe, Matrix Partners on his own. He was one of the original funders of HubSpot um, and a few other companies. Just uh, He publishes some benchmark stats on SaaS companies that are more in a startup and high growth mode. Um, just a, a real wealth of information for any kind of sales leader or, or somebody who wants to just uh, be in the know about what other companies are doing, what their benchmarks are, and uh, you know how they've overcome certain challenges, that kind of thing. But 
great, great metrics and benchmarks uh, in that particular blog. I'm sure you could look them up on the web, uh, David Skok, S-K-O-K, I believe. Uh, are you available 24-7 or do you have strict personal boundary, time boundaries? Uh, pretty much, uh, if I'm asleep, <laughs> that's a time boundary, but no, I, I, you know, I work for <laughs> international organizations. So in many cases, um, that's okay. Um, that's what you give up for that breadth in, uh, education. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, what is your favorite tool used for sales? Uh, it would have to be. The disk testing. Disk testing. Excellent. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders or CEOs or sales management out there? Build a sales culture. If you build a sales culture, your people will push you to success. And, uh, uh, you know, they're going to have you get out of the way for that. It, uh, uh, if you build a culture that everybody wants to get on board with and is organized uh, around and happy for, that's the kind of culture you want to be in. If you can manage that, you got the world uh, uh, by the bells. Great. Build the sales culture and, and do that with the DISC personality test. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a good contributor, yes. Yes. All right, Kirk, again, thank you very much for joining us. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Adam.